You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. Hello and welcome to TFM's local watering hole. And of course, I'm just one of the hosts here, Matthew Rushing, and so excited to have her back as she is almost every single week. Vicky Vale, Vicky. Oh, I mean, uh, Christy Morris. Uh, hey, how's it going? What was that? <laughs> That's a, that was a uh, Chuck reference uh, from, I think, pretty much the very first episode where Chuck and his best friend Morgan are talking about Vicky Vale and Uh-oh. Chuck is going Vicky Vale for Vicky Vale and that's when Sarah walks up for the very first time and and like it's real embarrassing so anyway okay. yes I'm here I'm excited to talk about Vicky Vale but uh more excited to talk about the Batmobile yes who isn't and uh we're so excited because uh Continuing our Batman series here, and everybody knows that John Mills talked himself into another series with us, and we're here at Batman 1989. So, John, Mm -hmm. welcome back to the 602 Club. Is there a six-foot bat in the 602 Club? And if so, is he on the payroll? And if so, what's he pulling down after taxes? You know, you can't release that info. That that would that's human resources, uh, and so you'll have to contact them for that information. Uh, but mm-hmm. if you would like to contact us, see what I did there? Nice little segue. Uh, you can find us all over the place, wherever you get your podcasts. If you're on Apple Podcasts, you know, please go over and give us a star rating review. Help people find the show, especially as Apple Podcasts just revamps. Guys. Every review you give us helps the show grow. So we really appreciate everybody who does that. We read the views out in the show. So uh, give us a review there. Of course, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. And wherever that is, just make sure you're subscribed so you get the episodes as soon as they drop. You can find us on Twitter at The 602 Club. We're on Instagram at The 602 Club TFM. We've also got uh, Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. There's the website at trek.fm where you can go to the contact section, send us an email if you'd like. And, of course, the Babel Conference, which is our listeners-only discussion group on Facebook, where you can talk to listeners from all over the world about everything that's happening here on the network. And last but not least, a huge thank you to our associate producers who make sure that this show keeps coming to you each and every week. I want to say a huge thank you to Ken Tripp, Davis Grayson, Ryan Millett, and Daniel Noah. Uh, these guys really do. They make sure that the entire network and the 602 Club keeps coming to you. If you love what we do, Go to patreon.com slash trek.fm. See how you can become part of the team. Honestly, uh, we've got a paywall that's going to be going here. And so some of the things that may have been free before may not be free anymore. And so we'd love to be able to let you have access to all that. So you've got to go to patreon.com slash trek.fm and become part of the team for that to happen. So, uh, guys, we're here. It's Batman. Um, I would say next to... Superman, the movie, this may be the most quintessential and most important superhero movie to have come out after Superman. I don't think uh, I don't think I'm wrong in saying that. And um, 
So I'm really wondering for for both of you, uh, and John, I'm going to let you go first here because I think you have a pretty, if I understand you correctly, uh, this is a really important experience for you uh, as a young moviegoer. Oh yeah, no, I I was um I was telling my wife this this movie is probably um I mean the summer of 1989 as a whole uh was very very formative in my like becoming the movie fan that I am today. It's it's a it's a touchstone point. There were so many movies that came out in 89 that really influenced my tastes, what I liked, what I didn't like. You know, I got the poster up there, but like, but it it was, it was really, um, I would say that Batman is the first movie that made me pay attention outside of Star Wars. I mean, I grew up as a, you know, diehard Star Wars fan who didn't at my age and everything, but Batman in 1989 is, was for me, uh, like I grew up as a Star Wars fan and I've always heard tell of people who are older than I am, who were you know 12 13 years old when the original star wars came out and the formative experience it was for them now star wars i was immersed in from it was first memory territory and so there's sort of a lack of perspective uh you know until you double back around to it when you're older and everything batman was that formative experience for me though it was the giant hit that happened at just the right time and was the first film that made me pay attention to score and editing and uh, and cinematography and script and all of that stuff. And it was it it became that launching point for you know the the fan I was going to become, not just of Batman but of films in general. And it, it there's a reason why Batman that summer became the monster that it did is there was a lot of hype going up to it. I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't go anywhere without seeing a Batman ad on TV. You saw Batman ads on buses. You saw Batman ads in comic books. You saw them on magazines. They spent so much money marketing it, putting so much into it. And they spent, I remember there was a big stink because the the movie cost something. I want to say it was like $32, $33 million. I'm probably imprecise there, but it was around that. So think about it costs a little north of $30 million, and people talked about how expensive it was, and look at all of the marketing. We were literally, what, what, two years away from James Cameron dropping the first $100 million blockbuster on everybody? And never mind what he spent on The Abyss, which came out the same summer. And anyway, so yeah, I mean... Batman earned its place in film history, though, is is what makes it so unique, I think. And you referenced Superman in 1978. I would say that Batman in 89 is more important to the comic book genre because it spawned more actual imitators. It actually created the genre, whereas Superman remained sort of a standalone experience. Even Superman's own sequels grew to be be jokes supergirl what you know what was that that sort of thing there was never really that explosion after superman after batman everybody was coming out with a superhero movie sam raimi immediately jumped on it a year later and even paired up with danny elfman danny elfman for dark man with uh liam neeson uh which was 
oh, it's such an odd experience to have Danny Elfman do the score. Anyway, um, so yeah, that's uh, I, I mean, I obviously I could go on and on. Christy, I let me seed the floor here. What was your first experience with uh, with Batman? Please, I was enjoying the story. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh well, well, thank you, but. I, I've gone on enough. Seriously, what was okay. your first experience with it? So I, I think maybe I alluded to this last time, but um, although I did end up seeing some of Batman 66 um, when I was a, a kid, um, this is the first thing I remember um, really being into as a kid. Um, and I did have a picture of my dad and I fell asleep on the couch together and I was wearing um, a Batgirl outfit but it had this yellow and black Batman logo on it. Um, and this movie came out. I'm going to age myself and tell you straight up. I was two years old. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm so much older than you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, sorry. But, but um, it was also formative for me in that sense of like being a very early memory um, and something that, again, my dad and I really shared together and had such a love for. And I remember from the very beginning that Jack Nicholson was my favorite part about this whole thing. And that, you know, I, I even told my husband, I was like, I think as a kid, I was kind of confused because I thought that he was really nice to Vicki Vale. <laughs> he was he recognized her artistic talent and wanted to help. You know, he he wanted to go with her hand in hand to usher in that new aesthetic. I mean, yeah. he really was an avant-garde artist. You you recognize that. I think that's that's very important. That's very good that you recognize that that an artist was reaching out to another artist. That's that's very yeah. good. He yeah. called her beautiful. He said she mm -hmm. took some great photographs, the rest were crap. And yeah. uh, you know, he like kissed her on the arm and stuff. He was such a gentleman. He he was. He was a smooth talker. He really was. And he even he was protective. Because if anybody mm -hmm. else called her beast, he'd rip their lungs out. Right. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway, that was my first experience. Well, this, uh, <clears throat> this explains uh, so many things, Christy. Um, so, uh, <laughs> I was 10 years old when this movie came out. And so, it was at a, at a point where I was not old enough to see this in the theater. And it wasn't going to be something that my conservative parents were going to let me watch at the time. So uh, I missed, obviously, Batman from 1989 uh, when it first came out, and I didn't see it till much later in life. And like Superman, it was a movie that I didn't personally respond to super well. Um, I, You know, I, it just never really hit me the way it did so many others. And so, you know, I... It, it's never been a favorite of mine and um, which is a really interesting experience, you know, because I love superheroes. Um, so this experience of watching it again was a fascinating uh, thing for me and something that I think we'll be able to kind of dive in and, and talk a little bit more about as we keep going. Uh, because one of the things, you know, John, I, I think, you know, you were right to have a start with Batman on screen and to start with the 60s Batman. And one of the big things that kind of kept this in development hell for a while was the fact that they specifically wanted a darker, quote-unquote, grittier Batman, right? They wanted it to feel more like the comics. By that point, we had already had, you know, the Dark Knight Returns come out. This is, uh, you know, people 
are paying attention to Batman and they don't want the 60s version. Uh, they want this to feel more like the source material, especially that we were getting in the 80s for Batman, which is very different because, like, as we talked about with uh, with 66, the source material then that they're pulling from, Batman is insane in the sense of, like, all the crazy things that are going on in comics. This is comics have become very grounded, very real, gritty, you know, uh, very dark. And, um, and yet, uh, you know, watching 66 and then watching it this this week to get ready, you could still see some little hints of like winks uh, at 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 you know where they kind of reference some of the stuff there. And and so I I yeah. thought mm-hmm. to me uh, just you know to move Batman on screen here, I love that they move him in a more kind of like quote unquote serious direction. But I also I thought it was kind of nice to when you could just see those little hints of where they were kind of especially with the Joker, of course, playing around with mm-hmm. some of the stuff you had seen from the 60s TV show. Well, what what's fascinating, you're right to call that out, like you, even the introduction of the Dutch camera angles and stuff like that to give you that off kilter comic booky feel. I mean, they're they're, you know, just from the very beginning when they, they cut to the long shot of the woman screaming as she goes to tend to her husband and you look at it and you have the all red windows and the dark black uh, shadows and like it looks like a comic book panel. Burton knew what he was doing with that. And even the fact, I mean, we want it more grounded, but the Batmobile still has the turbine. You can't get mm-hmm. rid of that that afterburner that if you ever have a Batmobile without an afterburner, people will revolt. Because that is just a necessary thing to have. So, yes, there are call-outs like that. But what's most fascinating about those call-outs is this script. If you really strip it down, if you were to just read this script, this is an R-rated film. And what I mean is that the script is very obviously, and this is going to seem like an odd comparison to draw, but it's like the Ghostbusters script. Ghostbusters is a comedy because of what those actors bring to it and what Ivan Reitman brought to it. But the script as it's as a whole still works. It's a good story. It has a very logical progression to the story. It has well-developed characters. It has situations you care about. And so even if you strip the comedy out, that script still works. Likewise with Batman, if you, look and you see how this is inspired not just by the grittier comic books but whether it's intentional or not this is in a post you know very much post but you know that death wish dirty hairy sort of face that that stuff that influenced frank miller and other people to take batman darker and so what you have when you when you look at this script is you have a really well written movie that works could have worked as an r-rated film but it's the sensibilities that burton brings to it and the playfulness that pulls it back into a pg-13 and i think there's been a misperception throughout time that people look at it as a pg movie that Burton's sensibilities moved to pg-13 because of his zany sense of humor that you can see in um in beetlejuice which is a very dark comedy um or even Pee-wee's Big Adventure has some really dark humor to it. 
but in reality, it's kind of flipped where this is this is a straight up R-rated movie that the director turns into something a little more family friendly, which is also interesting because as we go on and then we talk about Batman Returns, he, you know, he maybe lets it get a little bit closer to that dark, dark, dark territory. And um, that's what everybody rebels against uh, in the sequel. But here it works really well. And I think also you have to look at the fact that this Gotham City is unquestionably New York of the 1980s. Everybody who is of a certain age remembers the New York of the 1980s and early 1990s. It was this. It was terrifying at certain points. It was it was the thrill of New York was you could do anything with your life, but it was also terrifying because if you went down the wrong block, you were done. And so this very much comes from that New York City feel um, that you know that that informs the the way that it works all the way down to the 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 mafia right because the 80s is when Gotti was you know drawn out and busted and everything and everybody knew who Gotti was and what he was and so you could look back at it in a sense and say oh well, my gosh they know boss grissom is is terrible and he's a nasty person they talk about him on their stump speeches why don't they just throw him in jail and it's like Gotti beat beat his uh you know, beat trials like several times. Um, so it's a completely, again, informed by how powerful the mob really was and probably still is before they went underground. But, you know, whatever. Yeah, I, th- I think that it's an excellent point to talk about that stark contrast between 60s Batman and to the era that inspired it being the way it was. And then how, like you're saying, John, things were completely different in the 80s and people are less, I think, in looking for that escapism, um, false reality than looking for someone going through a similar struggle and needing something more grounded at this point. Um, And so I think that it definitely you can see then spawns all of this other future stuff because it is in its own right just a great story and then it's got all of these other treatments added to it that give it that dark feel and make it so interesting and unique but you know at its core it's it's got so much more than that campiness and the lightheartedness it really goes into just human stories yeah i think one of the things that i was able to respond to watching the movie this time was the way in which um, there is such a grounded version of the story in there, which is like you were talking about, John, uh, the fact that this feels like New York throughout the late 70s and all the way into the early 90s before it get, starts to get cleaned up, you know, and, you know, having lived through that time period and, you know, I, I went to New York in this the 80s, you know, uh, it was a, I was in the nicer versions because that's where my grandmother's family lived. You know, they lived in the brownstones and stuff. We weren't, you know, doing anything dodgy or anything. Um, so they knew all the best parts of New York and that's what I saw. But at the same time, I mean, all all the movies from the era really do a great job of documenting what New York was really like. And, you know, so. And uh, I think this movie does a great job of accentuating that and heightening it to the absurdity level, you know, which is the way that Gotham City looks like in the first place. I mean, it looks like 
uh, you know, the the Art Deco Gotham, uh, our, our gothic look is taken to the extreme, you know, I mean, and legitimately the extreme. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I think all of that is representational of they are drawing out is if you were to visually represent what the the heart of New York kind of was at that time period. It's a it's a scary, creepy place, right? You could be rich and do really well, um, or you could not do so well. And you know, like uh, the beginning of the movie even kind of references that. You know, by doing the play on the um, the Batman story. You know, with the family running into the wrong side of town and and almost you know coming away dead, you know, so and except you know Batman happens to be there to save them where he wasn't there when you know he was a kid, so there's no Batman then so i I think i i I appreciate that very much about this watch is that with bringing Batman to screen this time we for all intents and purposes, we are definitely on the right track to taking the character. Um, in a much more serious way, uh, but at the same time, we're not above having some fun at the same time, which you know I think is a great combination mm-hmm. for you know any comic book franchise. Yeah, but the like, you know what? I before I, I jump onto that other point or whatever, but like, I think people recognize, and I just hope everybody has always recognized the the production designer here, Anton First is was a, an absolutely incredible talent. He knew how to make something lasting and real. And you know, obviously this is not the only film he ever worked on. Uh, he worked on Full Metal Jacket, he worked on a number of others, and he had um just a really good eye like they needed those set extension paintings to work a certain way. And while we may look at it and say, okay, those are matte paintings, it's his design that enables them to go from sort of the cheesy set extension to something that felt big but claustrophobic. Gotham is a huge city. We see it from across the water. Yeah, it's insane. In that establishing <laughs> shot. It's a giant city. Absolutely mm-hmm. massive. But when you're in there, it never feels big. Right. It feels like you're just suffocating mm-hmm. and it's a fascinating sort of thing because that I think really captures that idea. Like there's this angst portrayed in the film that I think doesn't get enough play, especially in modern superhero movies that all of us, when we go into a city setting, maybe we love it when we're a little bit younger, but there's a reason we all sort of, pull back away as we age is cities are are inherently small and and dirty and uh over you know they're they're overbearing and they're they're just you can't escape you have this feeling of being like a a rat in the maze and i think that production design element just really really drives that point home and also the fact that so many things are oddly colorless, right? Uh, mm-hmm. I always think of the shot of when Harvey Dent and the mayor and uh, and Commissioner Gordon are walking out of the building where they're ha- they're pulling up the 200th anniversary banners, and if you look at them, they're like the only 
pop of color in the entire frame, right? Like you have the the banners and you have the three people. And so there's just this incredible, uh, you know, um, production design and, and photography that makes them pop the way that they would in a four color comic without being like the 66 show where it's these, you know, really high contrast colors against each other. It's, the way you would look at a, a panel in a comic book where they would use the color to make sure that the people you were supposed to pay attention to were there. But it's done in such a, a subtle way that your attention isn't drawn to it. It's just your focus is manipulated the way it needs to be. Yeah, like it feels it, it you can tell it feels all so intentional that it's these backgrounds feeling so colorless and gray like it's supposed to give you that feeling that it's a very hopeless small place Mm -hmm. i did want to touch on too which you kind of alluded to earlier john how this movie in particular um the direction that burton goes with is because he fell in love with the killing joke Mm -hmm. and the red hood and those stories about joker's origin and so it Although he does, you know, is making a Batman movie, it's also how he feels about how Batman and Joker relate to each other and how their stories are always intertwined Um, and that it is such a a deeper, darker thing because, I mean, we don't even get a Batman origin story in Batman 66. You're just thrown straight into what they're Mm -hmm. doing now. So this is when you're actually getting all of that background as well. It's actually, it's interesting because if memory serves, and it might not, but if memory serves, um, the, uh, the, the whole addition of Joker being the one to have killed his parents was something that Burton pushed for. And yeah. it was, in fact, controversial at the time. I can tell you, I, have, I remember the conversation. My brother was, my brother's older than I am, diehard comic book fan from the, from the get-go. And he was fine with it. But I remember in the circles that he ran in and I ran in, there was a lot of discussion about that. A lot of people pushed back on that because, you know, that in and of itself is a little too convenient. But at the same time, what's fascinating about that is just like Starkiller Base in The Force Awakens, you could almost take like an X-Acto knife and just cut out those teeny moments in the movie and you wouldn't even really miss them. There are a couple of lines of dialogue that would have to change in the cathedral fight, but you could actually excise that flashback where he sees Jack Napier as his parents' killer, and it still works, where he's sitting there and he watches uh, uh, you know, the Joker's pronouncement, and then Vicky walks in. Like mm-hmm. you, like it, It's so fascinating because you see how precisely it was put in there, and so regardless of how you know, you wind up feeling about the, the, the story element that's inserted. It's so deft. It's so, it's such a minor little tweak that I think it just, uh, again, emphasizes how strong the original underlying script is that it could survive that little addition to it. And you don't mind it. It doesn't dwell too long on it. It gives it to you and it keeps moving. But at the same time, like it, it's just, it's so, it's so surgically inserted mm-hmm. that um, it's not overbearing. Yeah, I think, um, you know, you mentioning that is uh, is so interesting. And obviously that is the one thing to me that really stood out this watch was just 
I called it the bat changes because we're changing the history of Batman big time uh, by having not only the Joker having an actual personhood that we know before he's the Joker, right? And and much the way the killing joke does, you know, gives us the backstory for the Mm -hmm. Joker, uh, but um, gives him this very, very personal connection with, uh, you know, Bruce Wayne. And, And in many ways, it becomes that question, you know, chicken or the egg, you know, who created who? And so it was fascinating to me because I I do think it on, and I would argue that the movie is lesser for having done so than it could have been. I I don't personally, I because I'll say this, as to what this becomes, this became the thing where everybody then thought that they needed to have the villain and the hero have this ultra-personal connection for so many years to come and you don't have to have that to make it work right yeah, and so I, I, but i don't personally think that it i don't love it it doesn't work great for me that they're that connected you see I, I i definitely won't fault uh you know lesser imitators that came along afterward i mean that's just the the you know uh, i might as well fault star wars for the the the, the crap sci-fi that i had to endure for years afterward but like um again i think it's so deftly placed that it doesn't detract from the movie and i think that also it's maybe there's an instinct that burton has that pays off later thematically because it does become at the end oh come on you know i i say you made me you got to say i made you like you know, like you said, the chicken and the egg thing, this is picked up later uh, in in other thematic ways, even by Nolan, right? Mm-hmm. Where at the end of Batman Begins, Gordon says, you know, the guy like you, flair for the theatrical, you know, and he calls out, are you going to cause a worse brand of criminal to suddenly show up in the city? Because there's going to be a reaction to your presence in turn. And so I think that that does wind up, maybe this isn't as, um, uh, not not apparent, but maybe this isn't as organic a sort of conversation as the way Nolan has it, but it's still there. I, I think that Burton is getting at something that is just starting to sort of creep into the subconscious of comic book fans, where they're going to have that discussion of, would there be a Joker without a Batman, or vice versa? And so in a thematic way it still pays off some dividends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, um, I think that it may have been different if we didn't already know that Joker didn't, you know, in the original comic stories, Joker didn't kill Batman's parents. Um, but I do think that um, it's an interesting story way to go with it. It didn't bother me as much as it did for you, Matt. Um, but, you know, I mean, like I said, I already knew before that that it wasn't originally him. Um, and I think, you know, you can also say that there are tons of movies after this that then just mimic the fact that it's a dark superhero story. Yeah. I mean, you know, then we get all the Nolan Batman movies in general and um, heck, Deadpool. <laughs> I think one of the things that 
it does do well in this sense, though, is that it by doing this, even though I don't love what it does, I think it's bold in the sense that you're like, you know what? Screw it. We're going to take from the comics and then we're going to do our thing, right? Like, we don't have to be mm-hmm. beholden to the comics. We can basically do what the comics do, which is we're going to make our story, you know? And it's it's going to reference stuff, but it's also going to be our thing with this character, which, you know, in the end, in the long run, I don't have a problem with, you know? So I can respect that they started a trend here, which I think is more helpful for the films, which is make it your own, right? You know, reference the character, honor the character, but at the same time, give us something we haven't seen before rather than straight up copying just something you've seen in a comic, you know, like just giving us a a, a Mm -hmm. retelling of the killing joke or whatever, which work great in the animated features, right? But that's not really what I want to see on the big screen. I want to see something I haven't seen before. But see, what's interesting about that, I think you're absolutely right. Especially with comic books, they should feel more free to do that sort of thing. But it's a very interesting sort of conversation to have because how many times do they adapt a novel and people's reaction is anger and rejection because they changed something or they, you know, uh, like I'll even go to, um, I go back and forth with my daughters because they've read the Harry Potter movies Mm -hmm. and then they nitpick what they choose to leave out in the movies. And listen to Owl Post. And I, you know, Mm -hmm. I know, but I, but I mean, like I go toe to toe, toe with them about, you know, I actually like the way that the ending of half blood Prince plays better on the movie than it does in the book. I think it's actually a little bit, a little bit cleaner. And of course, they think I'm an apostate. How dare I and, feel and that way? They would be correct, but yeah, no, they're not. <laughs> but but the the thing, the important thing is that we we have that different reaction when they change the comic book thing. We say, yeah, tell your story, and it, it's almost as if we just have a different mentality when we come at these yeah. things, especially with comic. But books. I think that, but I think that what you what you get at there is that what is so transformative about this Batman film is again, the fact that it, it is telling a story that is a good story. Just overall, it doesn't Mm -hmm. matter whether it's a Batman story or not. And so it works on its own terms, its own level. Again, if they had taken the Batman part out of it and just turned this into a reboot of like Death Wish or something like that, I'm like, yeah, the movie still works. And it's a, it's just, it's just a very unique thing that we don't really get now because I think you get a movie like this, which is unquestionably, I mean, they leave it open for a sequel. Spoilers. And they they have it, mm-hmm. you know, they have the doors wide open for everything here. You know that if it's a success, they're going to make another one. They have every intention of setting up a franchise that's going to make them money for years to come. But they still do things that you don't get in establishing franchise films nowadays. Where... It's it's a kind of amazing it's a kind of amazing thing that Burton gets away with what he does here, 
because nowadays if you're making the first Marvel movie in a in a long run, you have a storyboard uh not a storyboard, we know what those are, but like you have a story group and very hardline producers and a studio head, you have to do this, you have to do that, you have to make this happen to set up the next movie. We're already releasing three more movies in the next four years, and it has to tie in with this, and there's a stone that we're going to talk about, and this, and it's not going to seem like this guy can do anything special, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, but it's all going to pay off 10 years from now. This is just a filmmaker making an actual film, and the studio saying, Please just just don't break it and mm-hmm. largely just letting it happen. And, you know, they're watching the dailies, you know, that they're seeing what's going on. And this wasn't even the easiest production in the world. Right. I, I it was many years later hearing the story about um, Jack Palance or Palance, depending on how you want to pronounce it, flipping out on one of the first days of filming. And he lost his mind on Burton. It was like, you young punk, you don't tell me what to do. I know because uh, Burton had called action and he was supposed to walk out of the bathroom. It was they were shooting the scene where Joker was going to show up and shoot him. And um, he called action and Palance didn't come out. So he thought maybe he hadn't heard him. And he said, action and Palance flipped out. And he's like, I'm a professional. I know what I'm doing sort of thing. And it was Nichols like. Burton um, was basically ready to quit. He was like, I can't do this. And it was Nicholson that sort of was like, hey, 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 I can help you out. I'll shepherd you through this. I'll make sure this this all works for you. Um, And so you have a production where you have a director who barely has his feet under him taking on this tentpole franchise with a script that is really dark where they've alienated the star of the original series that a whole bunch of people grew up watching like Mm -hmm. this breaks every single rule that would be followed now every single one and it's so it's just so fascinating that it manages to do it and that we can't get that any it seems like we can't get that anymore well i mean and to your point it's the exact same tactic that Nolan took when he made Batman Begins. He was just making Batman mm-hmm. Begins, right? He wasn't thinking about the next movie. It's the same tactic that made the newer Planet of the Apes movies good because every movie was just mm. a movie in and of itself. And it had to be everything they wanted that movie to be. And then if you got to do a sequel, well, you'd think about that whenever you got there, but that didn't matter. It was about this film right here, and we just don't do that enough. And I think the, the tradition of really speaks well for itself that when you just make the best movie you can now, you're going to come up with a better product than if you keep trying to make sequels. I mean, um, mm-hmm. where you're trying to think ahead in many ways. And I think, like, as an example, the original Pirates of the Caribbean movie, the most fun, super yep. fun. But what happens after mm-hmm. that? They immediately like, we got to make this franchise and we got to do two more and we're going to think ahead and we're going to, you know, instead of just let's make a second movie, we'll see how that goes, you know, and then we'll make a third movie. And we'll figure, yep. So th- you really do see this um, playing out in very different ways. And, and I think, you know, you're right, John. It is one of the things that, you know, regardless of what happened, they were able to make a cohesive whole of a film. You can always 
they they obviously plant the end where you can have a sequel because he's got the bat signal and you know if you need me call me right um call me maybe uh but and maybe I'll, maybe <laughs> I'll come uh but i i think one of the things you mentioned was some of the cast and uh i think it's a perfect time to kind of jump into some of the main players here and jack nicholson specifically was somebody that burton really wanted and fought for uh and jack nicholson was the one who if he was going to do this he was going to get top billing uh he was going to get a a residual money uh you know because he took less in his his uh contract um just so he get residuals um and this i for all intents and purposes, this is a Joker movie, if you ask me. Like, there's, and I'm, I'm sure you might not agree, John, but I just watching it again, I was struck by how much more time we spend with Joker in this film than we ever spend with Bruce Wayne and or Batman. Like, the majority, I would, it's a good at least 60-40, if not maybe 65-35. Uh, you know, uh, that that's a criticism that's been leveled at it since the beginning, uh, you know, because people noticed Nicholson got billing above Keaton. People noticed that Nicholson got a little more screen time than he did. I think it's more balanced than that. Uh, I think that the interplay of it, it, the reason it works is because we do meet Batman first and that's who we meet first. And then Jack Napier is set up as part of the, uh, you know, endemic problems with Gotham City because we we meet Eckhart, we meet him, we meet uh, all of these people. These are the bad guys that Batman is a response to. And so there is, I think, also a an effort, not an, you know, it's not an effort to preserve the secret or anything like that, but it is a fun way i think they hold back on showing too much with bruce wayne and batman because batman operates in that area of mystery and it i would argue that it makes you want to discover more about him we know who he is we know who's behind the mask we know where it's going with that but at the same time it ties into this world building that's happening. And I think that there's a a specific point where it flips over and that's when Bruce goes and lays the roses and then realizes Jack Napier is still alive. There's a, there's a, there's the point at which everything becomes intertwined and it's no longer about building the world or establishing the extent of the power that Jack Napier already has before he becomes the Joker. Like we spend time establishing how he's able to have this machinery in place. The Joker doesn't come out of left field. The Joker already has these mob henchmen with him and he just takes over boss Grissom's, you know, uh, you know, criminal syndicate and stuff like that. Um, so, you know, it's it's not an uncommon criticism. I'm not being dismissive of it. I'm just saying that I don't think that it's as egregious as all that. I think that it's um, in the service of the story that's being told just because of the way that it's it's setting everything up. So 
you know, that, that would be my response to it. I, the big sin I think is that the Joker, I remember, uh, the reaction again, I, I make reference back to my brother, but also other people, they were dissatisfied that the Joker dies at the end. And mm. they were specifically unhappy about that because they knew that it meant the Joker couldn't come back. And since the Joker couldn't come back, um, it immediately created that question of, well, you already, the Joker's the big Batman villain. Who the hell do you bring in next? Bane didn't, mm -hmm. I don't think Bane even existed by this point. So there's this question of who could possibly present a big enough challenge. And, you know, obviously we'll find out who did, but nobody was sitting there saying, yeah, I can't wait to see the penguin. Like, no, nobody was, everybody was sort of like, it was a big question mark of like, I don't know, the Riddler. Sure. Maybe. Can you make that dark? I don't know. Like, how do you make Frank mm -hmm. Gorshin's Riddler dark? Like, the Joker is already pretty demented in the 66 series. It's not too far a nudge to make him the Jack Nicholson Joker. Uh, but the Riddler? Like, you know, we'll yeah. see what happens when that's attempted. Yeah, I, uh, I felt like it was a little more equal, too. I, I think that, too, it focuses a lot on when we are seeing Batman, the struggle with him trying to determine if he can allow someone else into his life. Um, and so we're not focusing solely on Batman. Um, but I, I mean, also I'm kind of biased because the Joker was my favorite character in this movie. And I also just find the Joker fascinating as a character. Um, but I think I like the way that they made him, um, more demented and dark than the one we've seen before, obviously in the sixties and, um, really got to allow Jack Nicholson to just kind of be his crazy self. <laughs> I mm -hmm. mean, I think you see Jack Nicholson's thumbprint on Joker in this so much. Um, mm -hmm. so I, I don't know, I guess I didn't mind for that reason, but I'm, I don't know. I'm glad that they, they get, had some fun with him doing that too. And, you know, mixing like the Prince music and in particular, like the scene with the, the uh, art museum and the parade, you just mm -hmm. can't help but laugh because it's like, he is so out in left field and you're terrified, but also like, but he looks so much fun. And, and I, I think maybe that gets to, you know, to the root of why, why that criticism exists is because, Nicholson's Joker is given two big show-stopping scenes. Like if this were a musical, he got the best numbers. Yeah, uh, Party Man and uh, and the Parade Trust, it, which originally was uh, supposed to be they were going to use um, uh, 1999 by Prince, and mm -hmm. uh, the, so the, the the pacing of everything sort of you you can almost hear it playing in if you mute the mo the movie tr and trust fades out you can sort of hear that playing in the back of your mind while you watch the way that the parade is going but yeah i i think joker gets the showstopper scenes but is that unfair i mean not really like it, it's like darth vader darth vader was the scene stealer in star wars now inarguably luke got more screen time but everybody came out of that movie theater to talk about Darth Vader. They were like, Darth Vader's pretty darn cool. You know, like mm -hmm. the, if you have a great villain, they, I think they just, you know, to an extent indulge that and say, we know you love the villain. So we'll give you a little bit more of him. Mm -hmm. I think that works. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm on the opposite spectrum here. 
I don't love Jack Nicholson's Joker. I think he's good and he's fun, but I think he's given too much time on screen. And I personally don't find him as interesting as I do Michael Keaton's take on Batman and what's going on with him as a character. And I and I am with you, John, in that sense where you said you're you're just wanting more and I'm in a Batman movie and I want to know more about Batman. And and, and so I, the way I thought about it was, is that, you know, by the time you got to the dark Knight, where you spent a lot of time with the Joker in that film, and it's a very even film, I'd already spent an entire movie getting to know Bruce Wayne and Batman. Right. Uh, and because this is this, I mean, this is the first time Batman's been on screen like this. I want to spend time with him I and so that's where to me I would have cut out some of the things with the Joker's origin so they could spend a little bit more time personally with Bruce Wayne and Batman and get to know him as a character mm-hmm. what you know because every every moment that I'm getting there I'm loving but then we kind of go back to some zaniness and and it it ruins it to me personally just takes away from what I'm enjoying most about the film, which is it's more, even though it's heightened reality, I'm enjoying the grounded nature of what I get with Michael Keaton more than the zaniness that I get with Jack Nicholson because it works better for me personally. I I just, I, and you know, Michael Keaton obviously got such trash when he got, you know, uh, cast and yet he mm-hmm. might be one the most normal Bruce Wayne slash Batman we've ever seen on screen. Like he comes across as just a nice normal guy, really. Like in the scenes with Vicky Vale, mm-hmm. like I love all mm-hmm. of the stuff that he's doing and the way he's playing the character. He comes across just so naturally and like a guy who's been thrust into all of these positions like being rich and you know growing up without parents and then having this compulsion to become batman and yet at the heart he's still this really just kind of soft-spoken gentle giving caring dude you know and like i Mm -hmm. i loved all of it so to me michael keaton was the the real star of the show and i just come away from watching this film wanting more of him you know it, it well i mean you know and since they were setting it up, you know, I'm. I, the thing is, it's I, I I I hate talking about Michael Keaton as Batman because I see it as such wasted potential. What happens after this? Yeah. Um. It it is he's he becomes sort of the reluctant superstar after this. Keaton wasn't really. You know, he 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 said from the beginning he didn't want to be 50 years old still playing Batman, saying to kids at a mall, hey, you know, tell your mom Batman says hi, you know, like, but I think what what makes him work is the fact that he's a comic actor. Mm-hmm. And as a result, he has a very easy chemistry with the people around him because comic actors learn to play off of and read other people. And I think what Keaton does, the energy that he brings is that he he brings uh, everybody else's energy out of them. He's not a forceful person. He's not, you know, a, a dominating screen presence in in the sense that we get with some later Batman incarnations. But he is somebody who pulls the best out of Robert Wool and Kim Bassinger. 
and even Michael Goff and all of the people that play off of Keaton, the, you know, the scene where uh, Bruce Wayne confronts the Joker in Vicki Vale's apartment, which has the delightful thing that I know everybody knows, but I I will never not laugh at the fact that uh, Bruce Wayne and the Joker say the same thing when they walk in nice apartment, lots of space. (laughs) Like they both say the (laughs) same thing. Um, But there's a reason why that scene is so great is because Keaton even helps bring the best energy out of Nicholson in that moment. And so you're, you're right. Keaton winds up being great and it is, uh, you know, a testament to the fact that people's opinions can change. And also when you see stuff nowadays where people are like, oh, I'm never going to watch, you know, Ben Affleck as Batman. Oh my God. They cast the guy who was in twilight as Batman. Who's Christian Bale. Like those sorts of things. That's just par for the course. Like Keaton got savaged. People even went after his hairline leading up to this. And this is pre-internet. People managed to make these opinions known in letters to the editor at like Starlog magazine and stuff like that. It's like, what, do you know how much extra effort people had to go to to express vitriol back then? A lot more. It wasn't just <laughs> in a phone in their pocket. And he got, he like, there was a lot of talk about how the studio had considered Rutger Hauer for Batman. And even my brother was on board with that. My brother didn't want Keaton. He, he was, and I know I keep referencing him, but again, my brother's older than me, you know, and as a kid brother, I remember where he was mentally, you know, before this movie and everything like that. And, but he wasn't even on board with Nicholson as Joker. He wanted Joker to be younger and thinner. He wanted, um, actually, if if he had his druthers, I'll never forget. No, nope. Uh, somebody who was never even considered, I don't think. Or, or maybe he was, or something, or rumored. But um, Anthony Perkins, oh, he was like that guy. Would, yeah, he was like that would have been the perfect Joker. And I was like, yeah, that would have really, really worked. And it would have worked mm-hmm. with the comic book image of Joker, which was that really thin, uh, sort sort of you know almost skeletal frame to him. Mm-hmm. That sort of like personification of death. And Nicholson's definitely you know larger than life, but I, I think Keaton. Keaton, in a sense, operates the way um, Mark Hamill does in the original Star Wars trilogy. He doesn't get enough credit for what he brings. And I think people sometimes overlook the energy that he brings into a scene that elevates the other actors around him. Mm -hmm. Well, and I mean, you're both right that he 100% got misjudged and typecast as well he's mr mom and beetlejuice he can't be a hero like batman Mm -hmm. and he proved everybody wrong and i i absolutely think he's one of my favorite batman actors of all time um you know i as much as i enjoy a lot of different takes on batman he's uh probably top two for me Mm -hmm. um and it, it is disappointing that we don't get more of him as Batman. Um, but, you know, I'm glad that we have this. And and like I said, too, I, I think that it was interesting seeing them play on um, him having a real possible future with this love interest. And that it wasn't, in this case, just bringing in Catwoman or something, even though I love Catwoman, um, that it was just about 
people and about, you know, Bruce Wayne as a person juxtaposed with Bruce Wayne as Batman. And, you know, I love that moment when she says, I just want to know if we're going to be able to love each other. And he says, I'd like to, but he's out there and I've got to go to work. Uh, and I, I mean, and that, that, and I've got to go to work. And then that cue, that rumble, you know, with the music and the vault opening like that. Mm -hmm. I remember seeing that on the big screen. This movie is made for the big screen, but like that, that moment on the big screen was just like the whole audience. You felt the energy just shift. It was like, yeah, he's going to go kick ass. Mm -hmm. Um, But there is some alternate universe in the multiverse out there. And maybe it's one of the multiverses we'll get when they restore the Snyder verse. But I, I will forever be haunted by what possibilities existed with Sean Young in that role. What weird twist of fate brings Kim Bassinger in there and what different energy would there have been with Sean Young as Vicki Vale as she, as she was originally cast. I don't, you know, like I'd love to see her screen tests. I'd love to see all of those sorts of things because I can't think of this movie without thinking of Kim Bassinger, but it almost wasn't her. And it's just, I, I'm, you know, it's fascinating because she's still years away from winning the Oscar for anything. She wasn't really regarded as a serious actress, you know, coming into this. She wasn't like, you know, she was a household name. She'd done um, that one with Mickey Rourke or whatever. By that My point. stepmother but, is an alien. Huh? She did my stepmother as an alien. That is true. That is true. <laughs> that is very, very true. But, uh, you know, she, like this, this movie winds up putting her on the map too. And it's, mm-hmm. it's weird because I, I will always be curious about what it would have been without her because I honestly can't really see Vicki Vale as anybody but her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she's really good in this movie. Um, I thought, Again, she has great chemistry with Michael Keaton, and I I appreciate, like you said, Christy, I think you nailed it. She's just a normal person, right, that Bruce is interested in. Mm-hmm. He met at one of his parties, and, and she's fascinating, and, and you know she has an interesting character development, and she's trying to piece all this together. I think it, it gives her a nice role. It almost makes her basically like the Lois Lane in this story, uh, which works really mm-hmm. well. Uh, she plays it really well. You know, she doesn't come off as a damsel in distress or anything. She's she's really smart. And she's figuring all this stuff out. Um, you know, uh, she's kind of a detective in her own right, uh, you know, which is kind of cool. So you have the, the two detectives on each side working on this. And I really do think she adds, uh, and it's really just the chemistry that they have together that makes the it work, you know. Uh, and... You can, I love the way how you can see that Bruce wants this, right? He wants to have the normal life, but he knows that Gotham needs Batman. And Mm -hmm. so I do love that moment, like you said, where he's like, but I got to go to work. And she accepts it, you know? And so by the end of the movie where, you know, Alfred tells her, oh, you know, he's, he's going to be a little late. And she's like, I expect it, you know? It's just like... She she's mm-hmm. willing to accept the life that that would come with the fact that, you know, 
you could die any day and you know that he's going to have to go off at a moment's notice um but that's part and parcel of the guy she's fallen in love with right and um right. I, I i really appreciate her performance i think for me the movie really is the best to me when it's those two on screen together um i just was really responding to what was happening with keaton and basinger i just think they do a great job together so um, and I, I think it makes a real heart for the movie. Like you just, you know, like you don't expect coming into this big spectacle with Joker and, you know, Batman's going to be there, you know, but this movie has a, is, has a really good heart with those two characters. And I think that's something that I really appreciate about the film, you know, and it's something that, um, it's not done well in every superhero movie, right? When you have the, the love interest thing. Uh, but here I think it's it's done so understatedly and kind of organically and feels very natural. I think that's the thing that I'm it, it's it for all of the craziness, yeah. it just feels like two natural people kind of falling in love. And that is a a crazy thing to happen in a movie that it takes place in Gotham and has the Joker running around, you know, on a massive parade thing uh, with, you know crazy balloons and joker gas <laughs> yeah hey listen smilex it, i mean that is a cultural touchstone that like <laughs> you can't you know <laughs> oh no he's been using brand x <laughs> yeah. I, I mean it's um i i just i think that there is just so much that works um with the casting uh but a lot of that again that gets back to burton knowing you know, a good director gets those performances out of his cast. And he mm -hmm. very obviously is a director who respects his actors and lets them be who they need to be in the, like they, they don't cast lightly, which is again, why Kim Bassinger is so fascinating to me in this role, because she wasn't cast. Like it is, it's a testament to her. And it's also a testament to Burton that he's able to take, uh, a brand new cast member and drop her in and get her to buy in and work with it and bring her best, uh, mm -hmm. you know, to, to the film. And, you know, th there's a lot of great supporting cast. I think there's, um, I, again, there's, there's a multiverse version of sequels to this where Billy D Williams, I mean, every fan knew, when he gets introduced as Harvey Dent, that was your one little franchise thing there where he said, ah, ha, 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 that's what they're setting up for the next one, maybe. Right? Like, Billy D. Williams as Harvey Dent, I always wanted. And that's why in the Lego Batman movie, when he did the voice of Two-Face, was like, I just, I, I giggled. Um, <laughs> you know, the first time I saw that movie, I was like, yay! Um, it got robbed from him. And it, it's not fair because he does the work setting up the character. But what's also really fascinating is, again, getting back to these elements, it doesn't feel like a force to, mm -hmm. you know, they didn't shoehorn him in for the sake of having Harvey Dent. It felt like, well, they could have just had Harvey Dent in here just as a wink to the fans. There's no obligation here. There's no moment where he bends down and picks up a quarter and says, huh, 
it's heads on both sides or something like that. You know, there, there's no obvious uh, arrow pointing where he has to go, which is why he works just as a character. And Billy D brings he has one of my favorite exchanges in it when Robert Wall is, is trying to get people to go on record, you know, at the casino night about the Batman. And he says, you know, we have enough to worry here without worrying about ghosts and goblins. Like it's just <laughs> delivered with such panache that, you know, I, I love Harvey Dent in this movie and it's, um, you know, and uh, you know, Jack Palance is terrifying, but I think that's just a generally true statement, no matter what role he was playing. So, um, Mm-hmm. Sorry, I don't, you know, I, I, it's just, it's, I, I like, I want to throw this at you, Matt. Is there anybody in here you think doesn't work in their role? Like, doesn't succeed at being their character? Um, you know, I don't think it's that anybody doesn't succeed. I do think it's really interesting that, you know, uh, Pat Hingle as Commissioner Gordon doesn't get a ton to do, you know, because it's, it's one of those things that feels a little bit like a Batman 66 in that sense, where Commissioner Gordon's just there to like say lines of exposition, you know, he he's not really there as a character per se. And, and so, uh, but no, I mean, I think everybody works, you know, in the sense that, I mean, I think Jack Palance, you know, such gravitas being, uh, Carl Grissom is perfect, you know. Um, I think Michael Goff is, you know, great as Alfred. You know, he's he's he every scene he brings a little bit of light to. I the moment again where it's with Keaton, where he's you know uh, telling the stories about Bruce and Bruce is embarrassed at the kitchen table. You know, like that mm-hmm. is great stuff and and again it's just it's so natural so no i think everybody in this movie is great you know robert wool is alexander knox is great too you know the the go get him reporter who's trying to get the story and is in love with the girl who's never going to be in love with him you know so it's like classic 80s trope there too so like i you know, all in all the cast works great here you know i i it, even though i don't love everything they do with nicholson's joker he is sinister and creepy and scary, you know, which is exactly what you want from the Joker. Um, he's psychotic, mm-hmm. you know, in in all way, shape, and form. So, and at the same time, he's just Jack Nicholson being Jack Nicholson. So, it's it's yeah. it's perfect. You know, the cast here, there is absolutely nothing wrong with this cast. And you're right, Billy D. Williams was robbed. You know, it, it's so sad uh, that um, you know he won't get a chance to play Two-Face, which is, like you said, it's one of the true things that Burton had thought in his brain, okay, I would love to work with this character and then use him in a later sequel. So, Which mm-hmm. just speaks to the fact that maybe he did himself wrong in the first place where he should have just put him in this, ne- in this sequel, you know? So, You know, I, I was... Um, you know what? We, we, can, we can table it for later, later but I, I do. I think the cast works so well that when uh, Batman Returns came out, I was hurt when even Robert Wall didn't come back. I was like, well, I want to learn, you know, I wanted to stay with these characters. I didn't understand why you couldn't, um, you know, keep them uh, mm-hmm. going forward. I, I didn't understand why Vicky was dropped. I didn't understand, like, I mean, I understood. I'm not, you know, that dense, but like, it didn't, it wasn't a wise choice to me. Um, because everything worked so well here. Like th- this is, this is almost like seeing a Super Bowl winning team. And then between this and Batman Returns, they got rid of the offensive line. And you think to yourself, but you, you won with the offensive. Why would you get rid of them? 
Why right. why wouldn't you exactly. keep everybody? You want to win again, don't you? Like, why would you do that? And it's, you know, but we can we can table that for our Batman Returns discussion. So, yeah, no, I, I understand that. And I did want to shout out too, just because I thought it, on the rewatch, it was so funny at how jarring it was. The scene, um, and it's a credit to Kim Basinger's acting um, at, toward the very end where she's in Joker's arms and suddenly decides to make that flip to make him think she's interested in him mm-hmm, to give mm-hmm. Batman the time to come over and surprise him. It's just so funny that he's just like the Joker is caught so off guard by her change in demeanor that he then gets caught off guard by Batman. It just it was so good. Bassinger also has this one moment where um Batman is about to uh, fire the, the 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 wire to you know to get them you know to go up, mm-hmm. and it's the briefest of moments. But she puts her hand on her forehead and just sort of you see her just sort of. It's not a faint. It's not a faint, but it's just this resigned motion of of course this is what's going to happen next. Like and it's <laughs> it's such a beautiful body language moment that gives her such a reality of somebody who's like I can't fight this, but. Wow, this is, you know, like she doesn't have a line where she looks at the camera and says, um, like Han Solo in The Force Awakens, this is not how I saw today going. Like, it's yeah. just her body language saying, this is not how I saw today going. You know, yeah. like, this is just, wow, I can't believe I'm in this situation. And it it's so, it's such a little human moment in a movie where when Joker shows up at the Flugelheim, to light the candles he has a little hand flamethrower you know mm-hmm. like she's i think a very necessary counterbalance to that over the top stuff and i think that's she's the reason that over the top stuff works yeah no i'm with you and i mean speaking of the over the top stuff i'm sorry the last thing i had to throw in was her reaction as well when joker says sometimes i think i should just end it and points the gun at himself and then it has (laughs) the flag that says bang and she actually has a real scream yep 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 it was so good it's a terrific moment well uh one of the things obviously we talked a little bit about earlier but you know i think uh, so much of this movie and, and it's so important um with the bat production like you know this really sets the template for what batman's going to look like on screen for a long time um you know we talked about the look of of gotham uh itself which was so important but i think you know one of the things that uh you know revolutionary here the suit you know there's no there's no trousers Mm -hmm. it's in it's all in black and that set a template for what the batman suit would look like for everything that was going to come next and you know the production value of the suit today doesn't look great because it's 1989 but what they're doing with it i thought was you know really smart and the way that the movie is edited does a great job of working around how well the suit does not work you can tell in the stunts you know, because you can tell mm-hmm. that the, the actor inside doesn't have a great range of motion, but they work around everything to make it work and and never make now, you feel minute, like Matt. you're missing something. Wait a minute, Matt. You're telling me that if you're walking upstairs and you want to look up, you don't bend at the waist? Exactly. And maintain exactly. a completely <laughs> yes. rigid back as you look <laughs> upward towards the sky? Look, 
Or to look to the left or the right, you don't turn your whole body. <laughs> right. Yeah. Or, or you don't have to make one of your signature moves to hit somebody with a back fist because you're just praying that their face exactly. is somewhere there. Right. Um, although those are really well-staged scenes. Well, and um, that's my point. They're yeah, working you know, with the limitations to the suit. And, and in, in the editing, they're, they're making it look like more is happening than actually is because obviously... It, they just didn't have the technology costume wise to make this work the way they wanted it to. But what's really interesting is it carries over in all the way into Batman, Batman begins, right? Like that, that suit is very much very too bulky on the neck and stuff like that. And they have to use a lot of the same tricks. And I like the fact that when they redesign the suit in the dark night, you know, he says, oh, you'd, you'd like to be able yeah, to turn your neck. Exactly. Sure, get backing out of the driveway a lot easier. Yeah. <laughs> like, so they acknowledge, like, that's a wonderful in-universe acknowledgement of it. But yeah, it was, it was very much, that suit design was much more about the look, cutting oh, yeah. the right silhouette yeah. than mm-hmm. anything. But what a silhouette it cut. I mean, that. When the way he floats up and down when he comes yeah. in and out of a frame, like, it's so smooth. It's a beautiful, beautiful suit. I, I know that the neck is not practical. I know that he would probably yeah. trip, fall, and kill himself within thirty seconds. And actually, I remember uh, Keaton saying they needed they needed like screw guns to get him into the suit. Like that thing was not lightweight. And I think mm-hmm. Bale went through the same sort of thing. But but Keaton talked about it. he's like if I want to go to the bathroom, we have to like stop production for thirty minutes because people have to actually disassemble the suit so that i can just go take a leak and it's like that's got to be so that's that's got to be hellish you know so well, yeah. it just goes you know they said the same thing about uh olivia newton john and those pants from greece yeah, they had to sew her into those <laughs> pants yeah it goes to show you just how much you know uh, obviously the technology has changed you know um to allow actors mm-hmm. to appear so much more organically in costumes that look like they came straight out of the comics and yet are more comfortable for them to wear and more functional you know you you do think and i think yeah. all the way to like you said with uh batman uh in the dark night where they make a joke of wanting to be able to turn his head. Um, but then at the same time, you know, you got the same thing where you want a functional suit for, you know, like Ben Affleck and, in the Snyderverse, right? You, you need this character to be able to do all these things. Uh, and you need the suit to be able to do it. And so again, but I get, I, I give them total credit for, like you said, they, they go for the silhouette, they get the silhouette and then they work with what they've got. And, you know, you're not going to get a great Batman action sequence until, you know, uh, it's not going to be here, you know, when it comes to like fisticuffs. Okay. Uh, you know, we'll have to wait till the, the warehouse scene in Batman v Superman. But, oh, well. um, uh, well, I don't think we wait that long, but I definitely, I, I, I still like, uh, what they do with the, um, with, with the, the Belfry fight. I, I think they, I think they really do make the most of yeah, hundred percent what's going on. And and I do think the Belfry fight is a lot of fun, mm-hmm. um, especially the way he dispatches that one guy. I mean, I'm surprised, Matt, as somebody who is a Snyder fan, that you haven't zoned in on the oh. fact yet that this oh. Batman is completely oh. comfortable slaughtering oh, no. this people is, at, at This whim. is murder Batman all the way. Like, Batman straight up just murders people like crazy. Like, he kills how many people? How many people were in that, that uh, Axis chemicals that he blows up? Who knows? But at see, least a hundred, right? Bad. Um, yeah, they're all bad. They were all bad, but though. he's murdering yes. them. 
without a second thought, you know, and, and Batman with guns, this Batman has got guns. He's got a lot of guns. So it is hilarious. It is absolutely hilarious to me. And I love that. Look, I love the design. I love the Batwing. I think it's amazing. I think the Batmobile is iconic in every way, shape and form. The fact that it has guns on it, again, it's Batman. I don't care. Like everybody loved yeah, that scene so too great. when he used, when he used the the the, the machine guns yes. to shoot in the like uh, in the video mm-hmm. game the Nintendo video game they made a point to show that because everybody loved the shot of the Batmobile with the the guns mm-hmm. popping out and you know shooting uh, the the holes so that it just drove through perfectly. Um, I do I I am always fascinated by the animation that they use to get it from. Uh, Batmobile to cocooned Batmobile because it's so obviously <laughs> like breaking the laws of like it, it's so obviously not real and it's like it's one of those things where I think it's so it would be so fascinating to see how they would approach it maybe with modern tech to have it put those shields on mm-hmm. um, but at the same time it's you know it's still a lot of fun um, but yeah the bombs and Axis chemical uh, the people he kills in the Belfry like throws to their deaths um, so that they can plummet. I mean, he's you know, and, and the Joker, responsible I mean, never mind for the, the fact Joker that he just, dying, you know, so. Yeah, mm-hmm. fairly. Fair, although the Joker could have let go have. before. He definitely could have. So yeah. he had a choice. But a choice. I will say, though, this is once again an example of this being Tim Burton's take on Batman and is not true to the original comic book version of Batman, which did say that he vowed to never kill because his parents were killed. Well, you know, I mean, Batman's killed in the comics before. No, but but you know, to to Christie's point about the you know going back to the the original original, I think that um, this is this is just so informed by again that that Dirty Harry death wish, and I mean, in the eighties, people were just so fed up with um, street crime in the cities. It, it was it was such a problem. Uh, you could argue chicken and the egg mm-hmm. uh, all day about it, but there, I I definitely think that there's an element of appealing to that baser instinct where people just want to see criminals get messed up um, yeah. because they're they're afraid of where they're living and they're they're tired of it, sort of thing. Well, and that I mean, you know, we go on to have a lot more vigilantes in in particular. Because I think people identify with that of like, sometimes there's someone who has to be willing to kill the bad guys, which in itself is an evil act to kill someone. But is it better that they're getting rid of the bad guys? So, although I get it. Although uh, John Blake would point out to Commissioner Gordon, I don't know, your your hands look pretty, uh, your hands look plenty dirty to me, Mm -hmm. you know, so. But uh, yeah. But as far as the gadgets and stuff, this Batmobile is my favorite Batmobile ever. I can't, I can't not love this Batmobile. This Batmobile is so, but, but, and, and the thing is, I think it's specifically because this is one of those moments where the production design and the, the, everything that's, um, that's informing this. Yes, they've got a grittier Batman. Yes, they've got a darker script. Yes, they've got a darker read on the character. But this is still that comic book whimsy. This is the same. Mm-hmm line of thinking that gave us the 66 Batmobile, right? We still yeah. have our fins. We still Which have we didn't our get turbine. To talk about. We, yeah. Well, and I, I mean, it, yeah, that was pretty, too. You know, there's, there's, yeah. uh, 
you know, to harken back to the goofiness of the 66 where you've got bat everything, here they really, like you said, John, they're taking that aesthetic, right, making it, quote-unquote, more realistic, and yet at the same time, absolutely beholden to the comic book look so that, you know, the bat wing looks like a big bat flying and you know and it, it, it the batmobile mm-hmm. like you said it has the the big fins and and it's got the great curves to it that you know look like a comic book artist just dreamed it out of his imagination you know so i think it has it 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 plays so well with the line of the the joy of the art form with the same time having fun uh and mm-hmm. and what it means to be more serious you know and it 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 works with all that pretty well and so and i think one of the things that where this really works is the soundtrack in the sense that we get this really great iconic yeah. theme that does uh stand up to superman in the sense that it created a theme that was so recognizable mm-hmm. and yet at the same time one of the places where I think this movie has the most whimsy is in Danny Elfman's score. Danny Elfman is very much known for for that and the way that he orchestrates. And so you have a lot of fun here with the way that things get orchestrated. And obviously, you know, the movie I don't think works without having a theme like this to really encapsulate the character. So the way that Williams encapsulated Superman in a sound Danny Elfman did for Batman, at least this Batman in a sound, right? And mm-hmm. I think that mm-hmm. that's that's so important, the marrying of the two. What's really interesting is this same year, was it the same year? I think it was the same year that Scrooge came out. Um, Scrooge was 89, right? I think so. It was right around the same time. But that's also an Elfman score. And if you take those two scores, throw them in a blender, you wind up with Batman Returns. And it's so fascinating. Uh, Although there's actually an element of Scrooge that uh, rips off Toto's score for David Lynch's version of Dune, which is really weird. But it it is really interesting that... um, see the thing is I'm going to torture myself as to what year Scrooge came out it might have been 88 but like the winter of 88 right before Batman or something like that um, but there is uh, a, yeah so so it would have been it would have been winter of 88 was Scrooge and that more than anything sounds like a Danny Elfman type of score and then you have Batman which sounds like a heavier more serious score and then you mix those, and that's where you're going to get Batman Returns. But I do think also, to your point, I mean, I, I know that you're making reference here, like what Elfman did with the Joss Whedon version of Justice League, where he brought this theme back for Batman, was wrong. Because this Batman, this theme belongs to him. Because it is operatic, it is bombastic, it is larger than life, it is in a world of pure fantasy. Um, that exists as escapism for the audience. It's not a Batman anchored in Zack Snyder's, you know, version of the world. Um, and so it's, it's, um, you know, it's, it's just really this score 
is so incredibly good that when Prince's album came out and everybody bought it, and I was one of them, oh yeah, we ran out, we bought the, the it's the Batman soundtrack. Okay, that's a Prince song. That's a, is there at least like one track from Danny Elfman on here? What the hell is Bat Dance? Right? Like, it was one of those things where it's like, you felt cheated when you picked up the official soundtrack. Because it was like, this is not the official, what are you talking about? And they, they made good later by releasing the official score. And it's still one of my treasured, you know, prize of my collection sort of thing. This is, it's such an incredible iconic score um, that, yeah, I, I, I think this film works without it. But this fil- this score just makes it work that much better. Just accentuates everything that's great about the movie. Yeah, and, and I'm with you on that purely for the Batman theme. That I think think it just the note choices and everything for that theme make you feel like uh, you're you know the king of that trailer um, voice that's like in a world where one yeah. man stands <laughs> against evil, you know. Da, 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 da. Yeah, I, 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 it, it's a theme that's so indelible that when they later had the Joel Schumacher movies come out, they still use this theme in the trailers as a way to just like, <laughs> you know, get at your heartstrings. And then you go, you go in and you see Batman forever. You say, where the hell is the theme? Mm-hmm. But I digress. Well, Sorry. A, I think you were talking about how it's operatic and, and in that way, it's Wagnerian, right? That's what it feels mm-hmm. like. And which makes sense since Gotham feels that way as well itself. Like the setting feels that kind of like operatic uh, Wagnerian nature. And so I, I think that's what makes it work so well. So honestly, I you know, there's so much more we could talk about. You know, this movie's been talked about many other places. And so we're not going to cover everything in, in perfect detail. Um I do kind of wonder where you guys end up with the ratings then for Batman. So what do you, what do you think, Christy? So I, you know, I admit fully that I am biased somewhat on this since I grew up with it and just have this undying love for it. And I always will, but I, I just can't stop coming back to it. And I'm glad that y'all wanted to review it. Um, So I give it a four and a half out of five Batmobiles because I still think that's one of the coolest cars ever. And uh, also wanted to add in that Jeff Dunham ended up buying this car and added a a Corvette engine to make it street legal. And now I want to go ride in Jeff Dunham's car. Um, The Corvette's my favorite. So I'm like, what? Um, Yeah, it it's fun and yet also explore some really serious things. Um, and I think that this Joker to me is really cool because he's got all of the killing joke things. He is that, um, oddly dressed skin white as snow. Um, just so creepy, eerie, you know, poking fun at a guy who he just burned to death kind of guy. Um, <laughs> and I, and yet still making you laugh. So yeah, four and a half out of five, because I don't think it's absolutely perfect, but it's darn near close. Yeah. I'm, I'm in the same boat four and a half. Um, the thing is, this always gets into, you know, just to, to acknowledge something you said, Chrissy, this always gets into that whole argument of, well, it's nostalgia. That's, uh, you know, 
making you say that sort of thing, especially if it came along at a certain age or what have you. But my counter to that is much like Star Wars, much like other movies that become cultural uh, landmarks along the way. It has a nostalgic factor because there was so much reason to love it to begin with. And so this is, this is a movie and I, you know, I mean, I, I've seen it. God knows how many times. I don't even know how many times I've seen this film. I saw it five times in the movie theater that summer, which for a kid without a car who had to beg for rides to the movie theater because it was so far away. All of that's a, that was an accomplishment. Um, and I remember it was still playing. My birthday is in August and it was still playing because I went and I made it my birthday movie that year and it came out in the end of June. Imagine a world where movies stayed in the theater for months at a time. How crazy is that? Um, also, the first movie to be released on videotape as quickly as it was. Um, but, uh, I, you know, again, this is the type of movie you could, you could legitimately teach in a film class. Shot composition, production design, script, score, all of these things hit the mark. And just it, it just on a purely technical level, this film is a tremendous success. Why is it not five then? There are a couple of trims they could make. There are a couple of trims I know that they did make that I think that they could have left in. Um, but yeah, I mean, just just a thoroughly fantastic film. You know, this is a movie for me that, you know, I mentioned in the beginning has never been a favorite of mine. And um, I think something in this watch it, there are a lot of things that uh, just hit me in a different way. And it, it and it made it a little bit better uh, and appreciated more. Um, you know, it's never for me personally, it'll never be my favorite Batman movie. But I do think for, for me, it, it's a good three and a half out of five bat wings. You know, it's. It's definitely uh, a good movie, and it's a it's a great foundation that that you know we get set. Um, and so, having not seen Batman Returns in probably twenty five years, I'll be fascinated to go back and and see what happens. That'll be a fun one. Um, and mm-hmm. then, of course, you know, I definitely remember being in the craze when you know. Uh, Batman Forever and then Batman and Robin were going to come out and everything. So, you know, I was old enough at that point for all that. So, yeah, it's going to be so much fun to dive into all of that. But uh, it is that time of the show where we give our recommendations. And so, John, I'm so interested to see what you want to recommend to the listeners of the 602 Club this week. You know, you're killing me here because, you know, every time, this, the, like, I really wish somebody... You know, I'm not pointing fingers at either you or uh, or Christy um, that maybe, you know, you guys could uh, give me a heads up and say like, hey, dummy, remember, you have to recommend something. Um, <laughs> so I will, uh, I I don't know. I don't think I recommended it last time. I don't think I'd seen it last time. But uh, if anybody has never seen Birdemic, um, it is, as I speak, it is available on Amazon Prime. And it is a movie that uh, makes the room look positively competent. Um, Riff Tracks uh, had a go at it, but I, I've never seen the Riff Tracks. And the Amazon Prime one was on there. And uh, trust me, 
Uh, it is important to watch movies like Birdemic so that the next time you encounter somebody who proclaims that the latest Star Trek movie or action blockbuster is, quote, the worst thing that's ever been made, unquote, you can say, oh, no, you just haven't seen enough movies. So uh, go out there and uh, catch Birdemic. Just like The Room, right? <laughs> it, I, would, I would watch The Room a hundred times before I'd watch Birdemic again. <laughs> it's that that is the case okay uh so i actually have one that i i kind of changed my mind on what i was going to recommend because of what we ended up talking about and some things that we didn't get to cover and so um i'm going to recommend that people watch batman the animated series Ooh, because yes. it was inspired to exist by this movie and also includes the voice talent of Mark Hamill, speaking of six degrees of Star Wars, as the Joker. I, 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 I'm so glad you said that. I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to, to jump in. But something I, I caught and I'm sure I've caught it in the past, but I, I, I'd forgotten it or whatever like that. Um, the excellent composer for Batman Mask of the Phantasm, which was, it, it, as far as I'm concerned, is the only other like truly great Batman movie to come out before Nolan. Uh, besides this one, um, was Shirley Walker. And she was the conductor on this for Danny Elfman's score. So uh. there you go. That is, uh, that, that is something for your back pocket. That she, that's why her score seems to work so damn well uh, with the feel of Elfman's score is that she was there at the, you know, the, the recording and everything. And I so. was listening to that, that one today after I listened to Batman. And it is so mm-hmm. good. So, um, oh, with John, gosh. you and I talked about that movie a while back uh, on the Six Two Club. So people yep. can check that out. Mask of the Phantasm is wonderful. So, um, you know what? I'm going to recommend my wife and I. Uh, I just got in 4K the Ten Commandments from Cecil B. DeMille, and it is so Ooh. much fun to go back and watch a movie like that. You know, just incredible to see what he was able to pull off at that time period, a movie of that scope and scale. Uh, just amazing. And, you know, honestly, still holds up. It, it's just a fantastic movie. So um, I highly recommend going, checking out, especially if you can, in 4K, uh, The Ten Commandments, because, man, does it look fantastic. So, but, um, John, of course, it's so glad that you got a chance to join us and and dive into the Batman series again and you'll be back in a few weeks as uh, we'll continue Rambo and then get into Batman Returns but um, where could people catch up with you if they want to see what else you've got going on well my sincerest apologies for rambling so much on this episode and I can promise you that I'll by the time we get to Batman and Robin my speech will probably be slurred because I will have to drink so much to get through that one but um I can be found as Kessel Junkie on your social network of choice, K-E-S-S-E-L-J-U-N-K-I-E. Uh, let's go ahead and connect over on Letterboxd because uh, I have a lot of fun with uh, movie reviews over there. You can find me over on the Nerd Party co-hosting a show called House Lights where we uh, talk about the works of directors from beginning to finish uh, for their careers. And you can also find me co-hosting Aggressive Negotiations, a Star Wars podcast with you, Matt. Yes, which is amazing. Uh, I think people should check it out. But Christy, you know, maybe uh, people want to see what else you've got going on because I know you've got other projects you do. Where can they find you? 
You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Bespin Bell. And then, of course, I'll be in the Babel Conference on Facebook as well sometimes. And when I'm not here on 602 with Matt, I do a show called Sabres and Spells with my friends Amanda and Teresa. And uh, we recently did a two-part review of The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. And next, we're going to talk about how we got into our Marvel fandom. So I hope everybody will check that out at Sabres and Spells on all your social media networks. Nice. Uh, of course, you could find me here on the network doing... Uh John and I do Snyder Cuts together. We've got one more episode in the hopper with that as we wait for Army of the Dead. Uh, doing as well... The Orb and Literary Treks. The Orb is about Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and Literary Treks is about the books and the comics of Star Trek. And then wrapping up, one episode left of Outpost over there on the Nerd Party Network as Drea Kaufman and I talked about every single chapter of the Harry Potter series, and we will tell John exclusively why he's wrong uh, and at the end of the Half-Blood Prince. Mm-hmm. But uh, So hope you will check mm-hmm. us out there. But thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear? Mm-hmm.